The following Dharma talk was given by Ron Hogan Green. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at cmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon to all, near and far although everybody in one sense is near. This is case 122 in the 300 Koan Shobogenzo. Fian's Fire God. Bowen was once studying in the community of Fian. One day Fian said, How long have you been with us? Bowen said, I've been in your community for three years. Fian said, you're a junior person in the monastery. How come you never ask questions? Bowen said, I don't want to mislead you. I must confess that I when I was with Master Yu Zhao, I attained the peaceful bliss. Fian said, by what words did you enter that place? Bowen replied, when I asked Master Yaozu, what is the self of the practitioner? Fayan said, good words, but I'm afraid you didn't understand them. Bowen said, the fire god belongs to the fire. Fire seeking fire is just like the self seeking the self. Fayan said, indeed, you didn't understand. If the Buddha Dharma were like that, it wouldn't have come down to this day. Bowen was overwrought and left. Outside, he thought, Fian is the guiding, guiding teacher of 500 people. His pointing out my error must have some good reason. He returned to Fian's place and did prostrations and repentance. Fian said, why don't you ask me? Bowen then said, what is the self of the practitioner? Fian said, the fire god seeks fire. At that, Bowen experienced a great awakening. Daito Roshi's commentary. If you have seen it clearly, you have the freedom to manifest it in the marketplace or on the road. Like a hawk in the sky or the salmon sporting the rapids, there is no hindrance. If you're still not clear, you're tossed about by circumstances, positions, and expectations. It's like a rabbit in a snare. The more it struggles, the tighter the snare gets. When a person of clarity meets another person of equal clarity, there's no doubt about what is correct or incorrect, and each further illuminates the other. However, when a clear-eyed one meets a person of knowledge, regardless of rank or position. Then teacher meets disciple, and the great function is brought out. Tell me, what is the great function? The capping verse. If you're not intimate with it, when it is revealed, you'll think about it for the rest of your life. That which gains entry through the gate is not the family treasure. 
I've always loved this koan. It's relevant to the main challenge of investigating what is the self? Who am I? It also relates to a parable in the Lotus Sutra in a particular way. Fayan School was one of the five original Zen schools in China. His dates are 885 to 958. It eventually became absorbed within the Rinzai tradition. Fayan's style was intelligent, very direct, and also prized a deep and careful appreciation of a broad range of the teachings of the Buddha Dharma. There was an emphasis on both direct realization and the, fu- and the functional expression that arises from understanding the teachings. In this koan, Bowen is part of the monastic sangha of Mestafayan, and has been there for three years. That is not a long time in monastic training, then or now. It seems Bowen did not ask questions and did not go to Doksan. And this already is revealing. And that sometimes happens. Students come into residency, a practitioner's practice, and they don't participate in mandos. They don't ask questions. They don't come up for Dharma encounter. Maybe they go to Dyson because you kind of have to. But are they, are they on their edge? Are they being extended? And you can do all those things and not be on the edge. So what's up with Bowen? Mr. Fayan stirs the pot. His job is to see what the student's understanding is, where the student is, what the student is practicing. Where are they in the realization of the Buddha Dharma? Who are they? The same question <laughs> in a different way that this that Bowen asks, who am I? So Fayan asks, you're a junior person in the monastery. How come you never ask questions? And Bowen says, I don't want to mislead you. I must confess. When I was with Master Yazu, I attained the peaceful bliss. Ah, peaceful bliss. Isn't that nice? And practitioners come here with what they come here with. And it's easy to rest on that. And I've seen that happen. They come here firm in their knowledge of the Dharma, firm in their realization, whatever that may be, an idea, maybe some depth, who, who knows, but not moving from that. So peaceful death, peaceful bliss. You know, in Sashin, many times you may feel at peace after Sashin. Sometimes very peaceful. Perhaps at last, if you're a home dweller, 
until you get home and your significant other or some person says something to you and you react and it's gone. Perhaps it lasts a while. Is peaceful bliss realization? Is it a mind state? It certainly can come forth out of our zazen. We're warned not to sit or not to stop in peaceful bliss because that arises. Sometimes if a person has experienced a lot of suffering in their life and they come and their mind is always preoccupied with that, and we come and we sit and some stillness appears, that may be the first time that there's a modicum of peace in their life. Sometimes they think that's great enlightenment, but that's, that's another problem. Is peaceful bliss what our practice is about? Does Bowen reside in deep tranquility? Well, what about when not feeling peaceful? No matter how much peaceful bliss you may have at any given time, Is that a permanent mind state? Have you ever had a mind state that never changed to another mind state? A feeling that never changed to another feeling? I've met a number of practitioners who dwell primarily in the realm of heavenly beings, the David realm. It's subtle but pervasive. And in a way, it's amazing that, that a person who is rooted in that realm practices. I have a close relative who is in trouble. And when I ask them, how are they doing? They say, it's all good. It's all under control. Everything is fine. And I can tell you from intimate knowledge, everything is not fine. And at some level, they know everything is not fine. But the accustomed way of looking at their life is control and everything is fine. And that so easily becomes a trope as a way to avoid intimacy with our life, puts distance between our suffering and what seems to be an unavoidable set of circumstances in one's life and yourself. Drugs can take you there. And you all know where that leads. But we can take ourselves there. Hershey Kaplow would tell the story when he was a practitioner going to a, a cocktail party and there was a fellow practitioner there who spent the whole cocktail party sitting zazen in the corner of the, <laughs> of the party. And he wasn't an experienced practitioner, but he knew there was something really off there. Daito Roshi, in response to what can be a conditioned mask of peacefulness, and I think Shugen Roshi mentioned this in a recent Dharma talk, that if everyone around you is running around in circles and panic, 
and you being cool and peaceful, maybe you're missing the fire. And I was thinking about this early this morning, about equanimity and panic and anxiety. I'm very sensitive to anxiety. I don't like it. So I'm really in tune with my own anxiety. And I've learned that, you know, what are my options? I can push it away. I can kind of be lost in it. But I've learned how to practice it because it's too painful not to practice it. So this morning, I set my alarm every morning uh, for a few minutes before three in session. And I get up and I have my routine. I take care of my personal needs and I um, get into my robe and do my personal practice and prepare for the day, which may involve formal teaching. And then come into the zendo as early as I I can to sit, hopefully when the lights are out and it's quiet. And so I woke up and I have two clocks. One is lit and one is my alarm clock. And the lit one says, it's 25 to 3. And I go, oh, great. I've got a few more minutes to sleep. And I turn back over. And when I wake up, I look at the clock and it's about close to 10 after 4. And I'm in a panic, and I look at my alarm clock, and it's a few minutes before three. And then I realized that alarm clock had stopped, and I had missed wake up, and I need to be ready to do Canton in about five minutes. And I panicked. You know, the number of scenarios went through my head, and none of them are good. Um, and um, I take took a few deep breaths, and I'm still very anxious. And I run into my robe, I brush my teeth, and, um, and then I realize I have enough time, just enough time, it's going to work, and I'm still panicked. And I know what's ahead of me is to go before each altar and do a liturgy service specific to that altar and then enter the zendo and do canton. And I do not wish to bring that anxiety, fear, to all the Buddhas and to you. What do I do? I go ahead and do the services. But I really do them. Of course, I always try and do them. And somehow, some way, It's okay. It's okay. So sometimes, feeling anxious and alarmed and upset gets me into my robe and gets me to do what I need to do. But if I get caught in it, if I get obsessed with it, if that becomes who I am, then there's a problem in my life. And peaceful bliss would not have served me in that situation. For me, one of the great insights of the Buddha before his great awakening is that he practiced with the great spiritual teachers of his day, three of them, and mastered their teachings. And in each case, he realized that was not what he was looking for.
I would guess they were cultivating samadhi. And the challenge of samadhi is that it can be a mind state. It comes and it goes. He realized that anything that arises and departs, any way of thinking and feeling, was not yet the direct experience of what is unborn and undying, of who he fundamentally is, that it's temporary and very subtly perpetuates attachment and suffering. There are many different perspectives and ways to understand samadhi, but ultimately they come forth, present, and then dissipate. I'm not talking about what we call absolute samadhi, because there's nothing to talk about. There's nothing that comes forth and goes. Samadhi is important. It's a doorway to realization. But it is not in and of itself realization. Fayyad said, by what words did you enter that place? Bowen said, the fire god belongs to fire. Ready fire, but still seeking fire, is just like the self seeking the self, he explained. So Fayyad said, now I really know you do not understand it. If the Buddha Dharma was like that, it would not have lasted to today. The Buddha Dharma was a mindset, a way of particularly feeling a certain thing. It would not have lasted. It would have come and gone, just like all the states of our mind come and go. What do you see in how Fayan asked the question, by what words did you enter that place? He's testing him. He's inviting him to explain. How does Fayan know that Bowen isn't clear? The words are okay, but are they alive? Are they real? Dogen, commenting on this, said, Previously, the fire god came seeking fire. Afterwards, again, the fire god came seeking fire. Previously, why was Bowen not enlightened, but flowed down the path of intellection? Intellection here means not just in the ordinary way of being intellectually astute, explaining, understanding. It includes that. It really is pointing at intuitive, direct experience, realizing for yourself that the water is hot or the water is cold or your nose is firmly on your face. That kind of realization. Afterwards, Dogen continues, why was Bowen greatly enlightened and cast away the old nest? Do you want to understand? 
After a pause, Dogen said, the fire boy comes seeking fire. How much do the pillars and lanterns care about the brightness? Pillars, lantern, just as they are. Do they care if it's bright? Do they care if it's dark? The fire is covered with cold ashes, and while searching, we don't see it. Lighting it and blowing out, again, gives birth to practice. Here Dogen is referring to two Zen stories, koans, one of which a master asks a practitioner, is the fire out? The practitioner says, yes. Yes. The practitioner knows the fire is out. And the master goes over and and it bursts into flames. Hmm. Lighting it and blowing out again gives birth to practice, refers to a story where a master is teaching a disciple. Some of it is explaining the master's understanding. It's kind of getting it. And it's late at night. And the disciple needs to leave. The master hands him a lantern, a lit lantern. And he takes the lantern and turns, starts to turn. And the master blows out the candle. And the practitioner has a great awakening. What's common in those stories? What's the commonality? In both cases, and this koan as well, Practitioner knows, is firmly seated in their knowledge. They know who they are. They know what is. They're confident. They cannot see their blindness. By definition, we can't see our blindness. The eye cannot see the eye. So it has to come, our vision has to come to us in a different way, in a way that will take us beyond our confidence. And the kind of confidence I'm talking about is not, oh, I'm great and I know what I know. It's much more subtle than that. It's a conditioned confidence. It comes out of the practice of safety, the practice of warding ourselves off from fear and finding a, a place that we are safe is unsaleable, and we don't even know it. It's just where we've roosted. Like my chickens roost for the night, that's just where they go. Perhaps we've had some understanding of the Dharma. We understand it, but is it realized in a way that is ongoing and deepening? Is it alive? And has our understanding of ourself, our position, of who we are, been seen through as having no fixed abode? We are a person. We have a self. We provisionally rest in that. Do we realize that too comes and goes? Has no lasting permanence. And are we open to that? 
How do we know when we're stuck? We know because we cast a shadow. And that shadow comes back to us as hurt, our hurt, your hurt, disharmony. It's off. And I don't know how to make it right because we still stand in our shadow. In his search to address this and all being suffering, Shakyamuni knew that true peace can only come from what doesn't come forth and what doesn't leave. Not subject to birth, not subject to death, not subject to the coming and going of mind states. Is it possible for someone who's awakened to be depressed? You bet your sweet ass. Is it possible for them to be happy? Etc. Is it possible to be confused? Yes. So what's the difference between being clear about our depression or unhappiness or sadness or happiness? Our changing mind states between someone who's not confused about the being and someone who is. The awakened state of a Buddha is one of perceiving clearly, distinctly, and completely the nature of things and all that exists. It is a wisdom that knows things as they are without being confused by things, without distortion. And yet when there is confusion, there's no confusion. There's no distortion. It's just confusion. When there is sadness, it's just sadness. I once saw a practitioner in a different center who was severely ill. She had multiple sclerosis, and eventually she died from it. She was asked to give a Dharma talk, not formal Dharma talk, she wasn't a teacher, but a, a talk about her life and her illness. She was a devoted practitioner, and she did. She did. She got up into her seat, and she burst into tears. That was honest. That was true. Sophia exclaimed, Now I really know you do not understand. If the Buddha Dharma was like that, would it not have lasted till today? Bowen was overwrought and left, so he's outside the monastery. And he says, I think I'm missing something. Now, he was, in his own mind, very clear. He had a clarity that came from his previous experience. But he says to himself, the guiding teacher of 500 people, 
He's pointing at something. There must be something I'm missing. In the Lotus Sutra is a story you're probably familiar with, where the Buddha is describing that his teachings up to now have been skillful means. There's more. There's more to it. And he's going to teach it. And in the audience are a large number of arhats, accomplished beings, people who've accomplished themselves. There is no more by definition to accomplish. They've accomplished themselves. And so they're there, confident in their accomplishment. Think about it. Think if you were that there and you had practiced as intensively as you can for your own awakening and had awoken and were clear and confident in that. You knew that you knew. And a teacher comes along and says, there's more, much more. But you're firm and clear in what you know. No problem here. So in response to a, to, please explain. In the sutra, 5,000 members of the audience get up and walk out. They got it. There's nothing more. The Buddha, though, goes on. He explains that Buddhas appear in the world for one reason. One reason. To lead us to Buddhahood. To lead us to realization. In the past, he had taught different paths. Different paths. But those paths were skillful means. In fact, he said, there's only one path. The path to Buddhahood. Practitioners up to this point, he said, were not yet ready to hear this. Are we not yet ready to hear the Buddha Dharma? And what does that mean? So he explains that if he'd revealed the single path from the beginning, many would have felt incapable of following it. Therefore, he used skillful means to accommodate them. Now he's revealing that there's only one path, and that path is available to all, every single one of us. There's nothing special. There's no special being we have to be to awaken. Simply because it is within us from the beginning. There is no lack. I'm recalling uh, when a student here, a very bright person, passed on the koan moon doing preliminary koans and in the midst of that, they said to me, I just happened to be the person who heard it, these koans don't make any sense. They just, they're stupid. They don't make any sense. 
who, of course, they're right. He's right. From the perspective of the dualistic understanding, they don't make any sense. That's the whole point of awakening. Awakening from what? Awakening from the delusion that you and I are apart, that we're separate beings. That has a truth, of course, but it's provisional. We are not apart. We are not separate beings. And he left. He left residency. He was so smart, it didn't fit into his reference system. I remember Ram Das. People know who Ram Das was. He was kind of a spiritual guru of the 70s and 80s and went on, continued on to teach. Where he related, he was reading to a large audience affirming faith and mind. And I heard this story when I was a, a relatively new practitioner. It made a deep impression on me. And as he's reading it, and going line by line, people in the audience start falling asleep. And he's looking and he's amazed and he keeps going. And he said, by the end of my reading of it, the whole audience was asleep. They couldn't or wouldn't hear it. That story just struck me. Pay attention, Ron. Pay attention to what my mind is doing. Am I falling asleep? When we receive the Buddha's teaching, and we cannot and will not accept it and honor it, that should be a signal to us that we're missing something. And I think this has to happen along the path, because Along the path, we receive plenty of teachings that we just don't relate to. Our karma is such that there is no relationship. So when I think back to rebirth and karma, I had no understanding of that, no relationship with it, and no interest in it. And as for rebirth, forget about that. Here I am, this life, I'm born, I'm dying, that's it. And as I continue to practice, Someplace along the way, I asked myself, how did a Jewish boy from Brooklyn, who was a real jerk, end up in a monastery with the intent to devote their life to the well-being of all? Does that come from one lifetime? It just made no sense that it could come from one lifetime. And many other such stories. But I wasn't ready earlier. I couldn't accept it. I couldn't honor it. And does that mean that everything in the Buddha Dharma should just be accepted without question? Just the opposite. Question it. Study it. Look at it. I have a personal saying. I don't know if I originated it. It just sticks with me. Yesterday's enlightenment is today's delusion. That whatever is, was clear to me yesterday, now it's past. 
and I'm attached to it, and I know it. So now it becomes today's delusion. Hmm. As my teacher once said to me, and says to me every time I put this Raksu on, when the Dharma fills your body and mind, you realize something is missing. The other part of that, which doesn't have room, but I got it, is when the Dharma doesn't fill your body and mind, you think your understanding is complete. In a way, we can look at our entire journey of questioning. What is the self? Who am I? As an exploration of what I am, what am I missing? Because I know I'm missing something. Do I have faith in the teachings of the Buddha Dharma? Then I know I'm missing something. Because I don't understand. I don't understand in the way I know I don't understand. In this place, it's not I understand or I don't understand. But in this place, it hurts. It deeply hurts. It's suffering. Not that it just hurts. It's suffering. Yours and mine. So over and over again, I think I know something. Do I? Dogen says, the seed of the Buddhas arises from conditions. You understand? The seed of the Buddhas, the teachings, the availability of it, arises from causes and conditions. The Buddha Dharma arises from the outset. It's always present. It's implicit. It's not always present. It is the present. When you encounter good conditions, do not stumble, but just practice. Within practice, there's both subduing and surrender. Subduing. We know what is within us that we need to let go of, not go to. Subdue in that sense. Sometimes in a very strong sense. It causes enough pain. Within practice, there's both subduing and surrender. Staying here at Zen Mountain Monastery, he said. He didn't say that. He said staying here at Koshoji, the monastery he was in. But you get the idea. Do not stumble, but just wholeheartedly engage the way. Within the wholehearted engaging of the way, there is both practice and effort. With one morning of thoroughness, 10,000 dharmas become complete. If you are not yet thorough, 10,000 dharmas stumble. So Bowen was overwrought, and he left, and he was outside. He said, I'm missing something. There must be something I'm missing. And he comes back. He returns to Fayan's place and did prostrations and repentance. Fayan said, why don't you ask me? Bowen said, what is the self of the practitioner? What am I missing? 
what am I missing? And Fion said, the fire god seeks fire. And Bowen experienced a great awakening. Consider this. He took himself back. He saw within himself something that was missing. He didn't know what that was. And how he came back. Truly the fire god seeking fire. Truly asking for the Dharma. And one of the subtleties to me of this koan is how in our life, when we encounter ourselves in a way that causes disharmony and refuse to see it or acknowledge it beyond our anger or fear, I'm not talking in a Dharma situation, although in another sense I am. I'm talking in our, at home or in relationship or with Sangha. We find ourselves arguing or feeling anger and resentment. What are we missing in ourselves? What's going on in ourselves? Will we, we return? And returning can mean many different things, situational dependent. Will we see that there's something askew in our understanding of our fixed self, in our position, in our place, in our pride, in our arrogance, in our hiding? This is no simple thing. This is no... It's not obvious, but it's powerful. The deepest essence of Dharma realization is hidden from us. It's like a seed in the ground that sprouts. It's in the dark. We're in the dark. And it grows out into the light. Enlightenment. That's how this practice works. We can't know it directly. And so part of this practice is to have a bottomless faith in this practice, in ourselves, and by extension, in our teachers, in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in each other because we are the mirrors for each other. We show each other where we're not willing to go. The commentary. If you have seen it clearly, you have the freedom to manifest it in the marketplace or on the road, like a hawk in the sky or a salmon sporting the rapids. There is no hindrance. If you're still not clear, You are tossed about by circumstances, positions, expectations. It's like a rabbit in a snare. The more it struggles, the tighter the snare gets. This is just how it is 
when we're lost in our clear sense of self. Firmly fixed, not responding to circumstances, and blind. We all know this pain. This is practice. We also know that as we deepen and open to the sun, our life, the sky, becomes very different. It's difficult to speak of, but our life becomes very different. When a person of clarity meets another person of equal clarity, there is no doubt about what is correct or incorrect, and each further illuminates the other. However, when a clear-eyed one meets a person of knowledge, regardless of rank and position, then teacher meets disciple, and the great function is brought out. Tell me, what is the great function? Do you see Bowen's function? I'm not speaking of his opening, but of the thought, is the guiding teacher of 500 people, is pointing out my error must have some good reason. Do I give permission when my lover points out my error? to come back and be open to that possibility when you point out my error. It's trusting something, as I say, that's very difficult to speak of, and yet is so powerful. We can't measure the power. So Dido concludes, if you're not intimate with it, when it is revealed, you'll think about it for the rest of your life. And you will. That which gains entry through the gate is not the family treasure. It doesn't come in through the front gate. We have to look. We have to be willing to face ourselves. Look here, deeply, unceasingly. Not once and not twice. This is our life. This is our opportunity. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. Everyone, every one of us possesses, is our essential nature. Every one of us can in their own karmic and individual manner realize that, manifest that, live a life that reflects that life of true generosity and compassion. And every one of us has the opportunity to see our errors, the places where we're not clear. And so we go. And so we go. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about the monastery's programs, weekend retreats, and residency, please visit our website at cmm.org.